Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Baleen McKenna is a linguist, tech enthusiast, conversational wizard, and a true robot whisperer. She studied computational linguistics at the University of Alberta, and since then she's led QA Crusades, expanded beta programs across North American homes, and built customer support systems from the ground up. Baleen has presented at various events, including the Conversation Design Festival in 2022, emphasizing the importance of bot building standards, language expertise in AI experiences, and persona building. She is also an active member of Women in Voice, promoting gender diversity in the voice technology industry. Topics we discuss include language revitalization, computational linguistics, QA, robotics, conversational AI, conversation design, data science, academic precarity, and job interviews. Links to Faleen's LinkedIn profile and resources that are discussed are in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Feline. It's great to have you. It's been a, like a year, I think, since you initially made contact with us. So I'm, I'm glad that we've finally been able to make this work. And I'm so excited to hear about your journey, the places you've been and the things that you've been doing. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on the podcast. It has been just under a year. I messaged you, I think, just before my 30th birthday. Um, and then life happened as it typically does. Um, but no, I'm very happy to be here and very happy to kind of present the path that I have taken in my own journeys, um, as rocky as they may be, as fun as they may be. So the first question, which I've asked everybody else is how did you first learn about linguistics? How young were you? Like what point in your academic career did you actually, um, figure out that linguistics was a thing that you could major in and get a degree in? So there's actually two episodes. Uh, the first one, uh, I graduated high school quite early, uh, because I was a wee bit sick. And I went to live and work helping my grandparents. Um, my grandfather had recently become ill. And uh, on my journey to look at different universities, it was determined that this would be a good time for me and my mother to go and assist him in his, uh, his needs. He was in his 90s. And I was at the library, the public library, and they were having a sale on old books. And I ran across a couple books. I thought, you know, I know what I want to do. I want to be an astronaut. I'm not going to be able to do that, but I could do something around that. And I saw this book on linguistics and it was beside a book on psychology. And I was like, okay, I only have a dollar. Um, and so I bought the linguistics one because I figured I knew everything about psychology. I was 16. I knew enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I read it and I finished the textbook and I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty darn cool. And then I forgot about it. And I went to uh, university and I wanted to go into astrophysics and I loved the professor. It was my first semester. I had also signed up for a linguistics class because I remembered that I liked this book. And I walked into that auditorium and uh, his name is Professor Eric Wolvengray. And he started talking about linguistics and I just went, no, th this is me. Uh, this is what I need to do. Uh, I banded together with the other kids in my linguistics 100 class uh, we sat down in the hallways. Uh, we made stupid sounds. Uh, we were doing the reduplication for squirrel in Oaxa Chantal. It's And it was absolutely fabulous. And I realized that this is what I needed to do. So very quickly into my first semester of university, I switched into a linguistics uh, degree program 
and I figured that this is what I was going to do. I felt this was my calling. I was going to help document and revitalize dying languages in Canada. And mm-hmm. that was what I was going to do. And uh, that took me fairly far. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. I, you know, it is a funny thing. Um, this certainly was the case for me, but for other people, it, it really is a light bulb moment where you, once you understand what linguistics is, you're like, this is it. This is what I have to do. This is the thing that makes me so excited. Um, and and I, I love it that it, it is a thing that just grabs people. Like you just know that this is the right fit um, rather than feeling like you have to do it or, or your parents said you had to do it. It's more like we all discovered in the wild and then we just were like, oh, this is definitely what I want to be doing. I, I remember my parents hearing about linguistics and they were like, wow, that's, that's fairly cool. Sure. You don't want to go into art. Like you're an artist. <laughs> you sure you want to waste your life on that. I mean, I uh, know that's not fair to my parents. They, uh, they absolutely adored the fact that I found something that uh, just took all of my attention and my love. What, um, was there something going on for you that, that really sparked your interest in, in working with um, native languages in Canada? So there, there's a couple things. Um, one, I'm Jewish. Um, and uh, my native language, uh, Hebrew, um, mm-hmm. my indigenous language, I think is a better way to put it, um, was moribund from 200. And it was revitalized in the 1800s, late 1800s going mm-hmm. forward. And it now has one of the most successful um, language revitalization programs in the world. I'm not saying it's the only one. It's just we went from having almost no speakers and the language being very um, isolated to a specific aspect of the culture to being a full language of, of our own indigenous countries. Um, a lot of the major linguists like Bloomfield uh, were Jews uh, historically. And I felt that this was just more of the world calling me to, and there's a Jewish concept called um, Tikkun Olam, to make the world a better place, to build the mm-hmm. world together. And I was like, this is, this is my spirit just being called. And, and that's, was majorly a part of it. But also native languages are just so, so interesting. Uh, I studied Cree and Nakota and Dene Suhline and, uh, and part of Dene Suhline was Upper Tanana. And I just, I adored it. The complications that existed in the language, the well, complexities more likely, um, as well as the sounds and how everything was put together and the fact that it was an oral language, the fact that it had a history of um, being forced and separated from the growth of the culture. I just, I thought that it was so worthy of people putting all of their time into. I still, I still believe that it is. I just um, don't have a hand on it anymore. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Um, th- there's so much work like that now being done in the United States. It took it certainly took a long time for linguists to okay. to really integrate. And there's been a lot of synergy between me linguistics departments and anthropology departments as well. So there's the you know the cultural aspect to it. So yeah. um, your BA is in linguistics with a specialization in native languages. Uh, specifically, I have a, a BA in linguistics. BA Honors in Linguistics with a mm-hmm. minor in Nakota, which is um, Assiniboine uh-huh. Nakota, which is spoken in Saskatchewan in Canada. And then once you finished your BA, were you set on graduate school at that point? Did you think you might work for a while or were you just like straight into getting your master's and PhD? So in my last year of university, uh, my undergraduate university, I, um, I knew that I wanted to go do a master's. I was working with one of my professors, uh, Dr. Olga Lovic, and 
uh, it was specifically on Upper Tanana. We were doing documentation of it for one of her projects and she was writing a wee bit of a grammar and I wanted to do that. And so she connected me with a university in Alaska to uh, do a master's there. And uh, that's where I went to do a master's. And uh, while I was in the master's program, I was asked to come to a PhD program uh, in the University of Alberta. And everything was just set, boom, boom, boom. I could definitely do everything that I wanted to do. I wanted to make it so that I could create learning materials. I could work with uh, communities. I could document languages that just sometimes just needed a person there to to record and then to separate out to make systems uh, like spell checkers and um, dictionaries. And I felt that if I could be part of the system that could make it so that digitizing these languages would make it easier. So even if people of this generation choose not to speak it, but the next one could, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. uh, something that I wanted to do. And the University of Alberta had the Alt Lab, A-L-T Lab, and that's what they were doing, but specifically for Cree at the time. And uh, they brought me in and said, hey, maybe you could also do this for Dene uh, Sutline or Nakota. And I was all on board for that. So how did that lead you to computational linguistics? So the, the PhD was specifically in a computational linguistics uh, forum. Okay. Um, because this is what they were building off of. Uh, I think that a lot of times the universities, when they choose to put a department in to for linguistics, they say, oh, we're either doing more sociolinguistics or we're doing neurolinguistics or we're doing something more soft linguistics. Yeah, we're actually just a translation system. Um, we are uh, communications. And so I was fairly lucky with my universities. The programs were fairly focused on native languages. Um, actually, not lucky. I, I chose them. <laughs> um, <laughs> But one of the things that they all sort of did was they said, listen, we are not a social science. We are a hardcore science playing in the humanities field. Um, We are going to teach you things that you need for sciences. Um, It just so happens that you're not getting a bachelor's or a master's or a a PhD in science. Um, I think one of the terms that was used at one point during my PhD was, we used to be a small fish in a big pond. And now we are a big fish in a puddle um, <laughs> to specifically talk about funding and uh, how they could get uh, the projects that they needed and they wanted and how it was easier in the humanities. And so that's where they went. Um, so my, my PhD, there was a lot of neuroscience. There was a lot of um, uh, computation. We had to take a lot of hardcore statistics, R, stuff like that. And it wasn't new because I also took that in my master's, mm-hmm. but this was specifically they called it computational linguistics and uh would you believe it or not the fact that i had those skills that i thought were just kind of throw away these are tiny little things i could do they actually really helped me when i decided i was going to get another job outside of academia Um, because i uh i didn't finish my phd as a spoiler to anyone listening um i went for it and then in the middle of it life happened as it does. And so it goes. Um, and I ended up uh, leaving. And that marks the next step. Yeah. Hey, same. I never finished my PhD either. Um, I'm still ABD 20, 20 plus years later. Um, so I'm really curious with the the range of courses and topics that you covered in the PhD, was, were, was the program 
still aiming people to stay in academia? Because it sounds like some of those skills actually are much better for jobs outside academia. So were the people running the linguistics program trying to prepare people for a life outside of academia, or was that sort of incidental? I think it was incidental. There was nothing that ever uh, suggested to me that anyone wanted to leave the program. Mm. Um, <laughs> once you're in, you never get to leave. You're kind of stuck there. Um no, so basically what it had was it had labs that was associated with the linguistics program or with the Indigenous Studies departments. And you needed to learn the skills to do the thing in order to write the paperwork because it wasn't mm-hmm. just going to be secondary research. Everything that I had already uh, already been exposed to was primary research. You go into the field, you get the data, you come home, mm-hmm. you document it, you make sure it looks good, you write the paper, you teach the class, you write the book. Um, Eric Wolvengray, Professor Eric Wolvengray, the one who I mentioned at the very beginning who kind of got me into linguistics, uh, he wrote a dictionary. Um, his wife, um, Jean, she wrote grammars on Cree, uh, learning grammars specifically. Uh, Jan van Eyck, Dr. Jan van Eyck, he was, uh, he also wrote a dictionary for Lillooet. Um, and he was also one of my uh, bachelor's teachers. Uh, they were all big academics but not just i took this and i uh, synthesized it later it's i went into the field and i looked at what i needed to do to get the thing that i needed to do to do the thing Um, Mm -hmm. and so i think i took that as that is the path of a linguist there's Mm -hmm. not enough data here there's not enough speakers you could ask or you could go into the field and not wait until somebody or a language group has nobody left to tell you right and so that's where i so given that, that that the preparation you were getting in your PhD program wasn't specifically for, for going outside of academia, how did that happen for you? Um, was there an inciting incident or, uh, again, another light bulb moment where you were like, this is not working. I need to get a job. Um, so it was uh, – <laughs> this will be a, a, a continuation in this whole podcast. Um, life likes to happen to me a lot. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, so in my PhD program, I got very sick. Oh, that's another thing that happens. I get sick sometimes. Mm-hmm. I have a chronic uh, condition and it has affected me just continuously. Um, but life happened and uh, my brother needed uh, some support and I was in a position to give that support. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of closed up my life in Canada and I moved to Israel to uh, be there for him. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, also, I'll be honest, it was for me too. I kind of wanted to to not be stuck in a uh, position where I couldn't go and explore and travel and be who I wanted to be. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I wouldn't have done it if he wasn't here. So I packed up. <laughs> I came to Israel and the bank systems here are super fun. I came with a bank check and they said, great, it'll take three months for us to give you any money. Oh and I went... No. So I like, know it's exactly that. They needed to fax or call or whatever. It was going to take three months and I was going to be dirt car. Wouldn't have been able to afford any rent. So I looked on uh, some job sites. I looked on LinkedIn. I looked on Facebook. Uh, and somebody from one of my old companies had posted a job looking for a linguist who specialized in phonetics and phonology, syntactics, um, and uh, had a basic understanding of sociolinguistics. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I love phonemes. 
you cannot get me a better job. Just send me up sounds and I'll just all the way down that way. Um, and so I applied for it and it turns out, no, they did not want a linguist. They just, <laughs> they wanted someone who was good with language. Um, but my linguistics actually got me a job at the same company as a QA, which is a quality mm -hmm. assurance tester. Um, so I worked for a robotics company as a QA tester for their product. Um, it was a robot. And so I got to talk to the robot, engage with the robot, look at code, look at analytics and to see where everything was. And it was a brilliant job and a brilliant move. Um, and the only reason that I actually got that second interview, because I, I to anyone listening, I did not fail the first interview. <laughs> um, but because I did well enough, um, they saw my resume, they saw all the points that I'd put down. I said that I understood statistics, that I understood uh, how things go together. I'm a pattern matching person mm -hmm. because in linguistics, you kind of have to be. Um, yeah. Because I said all of the right things. They said, hey, we don't want you for this because we want somebody who is a native English, sorry, a native American English speaker. And I obviously, mm -hmm. you can tell from my voice, do not sound, I can sound like that. I just don't. And so they said, okay, no, no, we want you for something else. And that was QA. And that worked uh, exceptionally well for me. And it also built me into a position where I could join a different type of industry, um, which is where I'm now called conversational AI design. I just want to circle back really quickly to what you were saying. Um, I have talked to so many people, and I, I include myself in this group, who have a real interest in both phonetics and phonemes and so sociolinguistics, which to many people seems like two opposite ends of the spectrum, like one being really hard science-y, the phonetics part of it, and then the sociolinguistics, which too many people seem so squishy. And I see them as totally naturally integrated. And so do other people who, who have those. And I, and I think if you're going to get a job where you're doing phonetics, you have to have the sociolinguistics part of it, right? Because it's not in a vacuum. It always has to have context. And the context comes with how you use that language with people. And then that's sociolinguistics. So I think that there's a wee bit of a, a cross and a mismatch. And I think that you can use whichever part makes sense for you. Um, for instance, conversation analysis is... Uh, part of sociolinguistics that a lot of sociolinguists don't actually mm -hmm. like doing because it's really like technical techie. I have to draw these lines and these interrupts, and but it's very much a part of that. And so that's one part of uh, the job that I, I do a wee bit more than I expected to, uh, having studied all of the uh, morphosyntax that I did. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I, I would say that I'm not sure if they fully belong together so much that um, if you want to to understand the whole role, you definitely need to go both from the forest for the trees and the trees for the forest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, and I will say that in uh, conversation design, uh, so I specifically work with, um, in the terms of phonetics, with uh, text-to-speech systems, and they use something called SSML, Speech Synthesized Markup Language, which you can actually write down the phonemes of the language you want to get something to sound the way that you want it to sound. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely have a leg up to people who've never heard about the IPA before. Mm -hmm. I just go, hey, listen, that's not how it's supposed to sound. They go, well, what is it supposed to sound like? And I say, okay, well, here's the little IPA symbols and we're done. And it sounds perfect. And they go, well, that's insane. <laughs> that's, that's really fun. 
Oh, amazing. Yeah, I, I have said many times, sometimes when you whip out a little bit of linguistic knowledge to people, they, they look at you like you're a wizard. Like, how is this even possible? Oh, yes. Linguistics is a, uh, it's a joy for sure. It's, it's not necessarily the most useful of all skills when you don't know how to apply it, but it is definitely a party trick worth uh, doing because it'll get you in the door. So at this company, um, you've had a couple of different positions. So did that happen because you wanted different positions or because they, the, your employer like looked at you and said, you know what, we should move you to this department. You'd be better doing that. How did that happen? So there's a couple of different uh, reasons. Uh, one, I am a jack of all trades, and I think that linguistics actually puts you in that position where you really should be, uh, especially mm -hmm. uh, coming from the documentation side. Uh, you can't just be a person who reads and goes, that's cool. You have to be a person who says, that's weird. Let me see why that's weird. And let me go ask somebody why that's weird. Um, mm -hmm. or, or say, that's really cool. I want more examples of that. Please, mm -hmm. let's find something. Um, and to make the connections. Uh, so in this company I was with, um, I was QA, I was the director of technical support. I was uh, a developer and I've been a conversational AI designer. Um, and what this all means is that I've basically had a hand in most aspects of how the, uh, the system ended up running. Um, some of them were more sp uh, spontaneous. I became a director of technical support because I was a QA and I wanted to become a developer and our QA person, and our, QA, our director of technical support beforehand, uh, she got a job uh, as a VP of a different company. And they said, hey, you know, you have all of the skills to manage people and to fix the issues. Uh, we'd like you to step in. Um, and part of that was me spending a lot of time understanding the system. Um, I'll give a sort of a nice analogy and I hope that it comes across well for you because it does for me. Um, when you're looking at logs of a, a computer system, uh, they basically uh, move up into the system. You see everything that's running. Um, to me, that's kind of like looking at a waveform. Um, mm. they, kind of, they kind of look like what they should be and you can see, okay, well, this should be the vowel because it's more round and this is a stop because it just ends. And so you start to feel what something should look like even if it doesn't quite look like that. Um, and because you've been experienced in doing those things, you can start making those patterns very, very quickly. And so one of the things, let's say, that we noticed or I noticed was when you would call the wake word of the system, you'd say the name and it would wake up to say, hello, and there was a time delay. And having experienced reading things like waveforms where you just, you see a lot of them and they're super zoomed out and doesn't really matter until suddenly you're like, that one looks weird. Um, being able to pick that out and saying that was weird was something that became a skill that I was able to continuously use to improve uh, our system or to improve our testing. And so when it came to becoming a uh, director of technical support, it was about knowing where the system might break based on that bigger view. Um, mm -hmm. Not sure if that was a perfect analogy, but um, it's kind of how I, I think about it because I don't think that they're different skills. I just think that you're just looking at different things. I like what you said I, before, and I think this is a perfect example of it. You know, linguists are just super good at looking, finding patterns, looking at patterns, seeing what's a, like a normal pattern or an abnormal pattern, mm -hmm. um, and figuring out taxonomies. It, sure. It's, you know, it, it's very organizational, and that 
organization skill, that pattern finding and pattern matching and taxonomies is applicable in so many different places. I feel like a linguistic training lets you do that intuitively, right? Like you're not consciously even thinking about it. You're just seeing stuff and that part of your brain knows what to look for. And and that's just a skill that you learn and it gets honed over time because you do so much of it when you're doing linguistics, right? You're doing field work and you're getting data and you're, you're just looking for what's going to be relevant in it. Um, and it, it sounds like that is just exactly what you ended up doing there is just doing lots and lots of pattern matching really quickly and really intuitively about language. Uh, for sure. I, I agree. And I also think that one of the things that comes to mind when I think about all of the education that I went through, all of the school, the courses, um, was the ability to think maybe less linearly. Um, mm -hmm. So for instance, if I decided I wanted to become a lawyer, I'd go to school, study law. Well, I'd go to school, I'd get an undergraduate in something, maybe a communications degree. Then I'd go for law school for two years then I'd do an internship, then I'd go and I'd become a lawyer. Very linear. This is how it needs to go. I can think about things in loopholes within that, but in general, it's a straight structure. But in linguistics, uh, I always found that every time you open a door, there was extra paths that you would need to consider and need to go down. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're even just doing something as simple as homework, um, one of my favorite activities, and I think we've all kind of been here, is you get a data set and it has like 10 different things and it says, okay, tell me what the ninth is or the 11th is or uh, <laughs> right. what is the pattern here or hey listen all of these things have one pattern what is it and it turns out it's vowel intercalation but you've never heard of that before because this is your first year in university and you're like that's crazy um but because it teaches you to think that maybe there is not just one answer maybe there is a different way to go about it or maybe you can go about it and get the right answer but look at it through different perspectives um and because you do that continuously over and over for four years, six years, eight years, um, when you get into a field such as where I'm in, which is high tech, uh, when you're in startups, linear thinking is only going to get you so far. Eventually, you're going to need to identify things and saying, these are potential paths of improvement. These are potential paths of successes. And all of them are good. And I have no personal weight on one or the other. Um, and I think that that separation is something that I found that linguistics taught me, but I also 100% know linguists who did not do that. And this, this is the only answer and fights have started from that. But <laughs> but I think that that nonlinear thinking is super useful and is not necessarily taught in other systems of uh, or other degree systems. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful answer. I love that. And I, I, I feel like that applies not only to the thinking that you do as, as part of the work that you do, but also um, the path of your life. I mean, you were just talking before about how things happen, your life happens, and there's a certain adaptability that comes, I think, with linguistics where, you know, your path isn't going to be linear, your work isn't going to be linear, and, and it's okay. Like, you just adapt to it, and, and that's fine. Um, whereas, yeah. like, yeah, with something like law, it does tend to be extremely linear, and with academia as well, right? Like, you mm -hmm. you get your degree, and you do your postdoc, and then you get a job, and you're at the same university for the next 30 years of your life, and that's it. Yeah, or if you think about the traditional path of, of linguists who get in from their undergrad, I joined linguistics as an undergrad, and I go and I get my master's in speech path, and then that's what I am. I'm a speech path for the rest of my life. And if I don't do speech path, I go and I get my master's and then my PhD and then I teach. Maybe I do a bit of research. Maybe I run about. Um, but if you aren't going to go and do either of those speech path or master's, 
then you're left thinking, what can I do? And I remember my university um, interviewed all of the linguistic students because they were talking about what majors do we have at this school? And uh, to a one, every single one of us said uh, something along the lines of we could do anything we want. We could become spies. We could do uh, translation. We could uh, work for, for the government. Uh, and then everyone, and this is the important part, said, but if we told you what we were going to do, we'd have to kill you. Um, and I think that that goes very much to what I view linguistics as. It's anything that you want it to be, um, but please don't ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure yet. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's really funny. Um, in your job at, at your company, the, the not the one you have now, but the previous company, were there other linguists or were you the only one? So at the beginning, um, there was not. And we had people who were communication majors. And I do want to stress that I do believe that there is a strong fundamental difference between a communication major and a linguist. Uh-huh. Um, we just we do different things. We're trained to do different things. We're trained to look at things differently. Um, you can become a linguist from a communications major, but I just don't think mm-hmm. they're the same. Um, so no, in the beginning there was not. And then they hired someone temporarily who had this as a background, but she never thought that she'd use it. And as the years sort of went by, we started finding more and more linguists. So we hired somebody as another QA uh, they had great success with me as a linguist, as QA, so they hired another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we hired, uh, as a product manager, we hired another linguist. Uh, and she ended up working on our um, natural language processing system, our NLP, which is this, basically, if you've heard of LLMs and you've heard of ChatGPT, the understanding that after you type, the system understands you and then spits out something, that understanding is NLP. And so we got a linguist mm-hmm. for that one as well. Um and in general, as uh, the year started going, I started realizing that linguists were just much more prevalent than I had previously thought because we weren't marketing ourselves as linguists at the time. We were marketing mm-hmm. ourselves as other things. But once we got together, we realized, oh, there's a lot of us. Uh, I also worked for the Conversation Design Institute and uh, talked to a bunch of people who were taking the courses to become conversational AI designers and developers. Um, and a lot of them came from linguistics. They studied linguistics, they studied uh, uh, communications, they understood what a linguist was, and then they ended up going into marketing or something like that. Um, but turns out uh, that at the end of the day, they want to be linguists, they want to do conversation analysis, they want to write speeches, they want systems to understand better. And so that's where we get a lot of linguists. Um, um, I can also say that I was recently at a conference where I spoke about uh, my current company and what we're doing to teach language through a robot. And a lot of the speakers, not a lot, a lot, but a good portion were linguists. They talk about going into conversation design from being a linguist. And it is quite exciting to see how many positions are open once you consider yourself more than just somebody who likes language. If you look at yourself from a position of somebody who understands data, who can look at large portions of data, who can do data science. If you look at yourself as somebody who understands how sentences should work, you can go into marketing um, because now you suddenly understand the importance of how language exists and how people work with language. Uh, You can go into content design or content creation because words matter and the way that you say it and the message in which you portray things matters. And so you can say certain images 
mean certain things or, or certain words evoke other stories. And we also had people who, who just, they have so many linguistics jokes that it just works, you know? Um, and so you can throw in a bunch of linguistics jokes and everybody kind of just, they get it because this is language. They feel they understand the language and they want to know more about it. And so as a linguist, you come with this huge arsenal of potentially interesting skills as well as anecdotal stories that are super useful in the real world. So you you did the thing that many people do when they are like the first linguist who gets hired, which is then you hire other linguists and you bring them in because why not? You know, you know, linguists are good and they're going to do the kind of work you want. When you were um, hiring people for those positions, were any of them hired as linguists? Like was linguist the job title or was it more conversational design or QA or whatever that you were hiring them for? Uh, so we never hired the specific title of linguist. Um and uh, something that I found, not just in the companies that I've worked for, but companies that I've applied to work for, is anytime the word linguist is used, it's not used as linguist. Mm-hmm. It's used as language enthusiast or <laughs> um, bilingual yeah. or uh, a writer, but it's never used as a linguist. And when I actually spoke to, with someone about it and I said, listen, you asked for a linguist. Um, but you don't want a linguist. What did you mean? And they said, but I want a linguist. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I, I'm a linguist. What I do is I record sounds. I go through the data. I separate out each sound to see what it is. Then I look at it in writing and I say, okay, this is it. And I parse each individual thing and I say, okay, now this is a word. And these are all the morphemes inside of the word. And these are the pitch formants. And this is how everything works together. And from all of this, I'm able to tell you that this is indeed a word and not this, which was a sentence. And now I can tell you that if I wanted to say she laughs, I could say um, and that's actually seven different morphemes. And he goes, well, that's not what we wanted at all. And I'm like, I know, I know you didn't, <laughs> but that's what I do as a linguist. So mm-hmm. tell me what you wanted. Um, and so it's often used more as a adjective as opposed to a job title. Oh, yeah, that, that's I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I liked what you were saying before about the applicability of the linguistic training in, in fields like marketing, which is what I do. And I completely agree with you. Um, and the skills you learn as a linguist, you know, especially when you're doing sociolinguistics or applied linguistics is seeing what the effect is that language has on people, right? And that's what marketing mm-hmm. is all about, marketing and branding. Mm-hmm. It's just using language for a very specific purpose. And who better to do that kind of analysis and recommendation than linguists? Because that's that's what we're doing. We're looking at it, we're breaking it down, we're analyzing it. So I, I feel like that kind of um, linguistic training works really well in marketing, but people are never hired in marketing as linguists, right? It's no, content it development or, or, you know, all the different titles that, that come in marketing, never linguist. No, it's a language matters, linguists care, and mm-hmm. uh, don't specifically hire them. But I think it's mostly because the idea of it is not there. For instance, um, so I, I'm in Israel now. Um, the study of linguistics is called Balshanut. Um, ignore my pronunciation. I only started learning this language as an adult. My accent is totally fossilized. Um, but 
but people hear that and they go, oh, you're a detective because the word is kind of similar. And if they're much more familiar with the word for to detect than mm-hmm. they are for the word of linguist. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this concept sort of exists everywhere. Um, we try to hire, okay, so I'll go back and step and say, I know that places that are big, like Amazon, like Google, um, they hire for job title. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this because I've applied. <laughs> and so if you don't have that specific job title, you don't have that background, that history, um, it's going to be quite difficult. And so they don't specifically hire for something linguist unless they're specifically looking for something with the title linguist. And that's very often they don't do that. So you would want to be looking for jobs that did the same things or had similar things that you liked or you enjoyed about your linguistics education. So if you really liked creating that database um, and you liked analyzing it and you put everything into your Google spreadsheet and you were like, okay, I'm going to tell you all about these things and when these things happened and what changes were there, um, that's data analytics Mm -hmm. and that's a data science job. And for the cost of two months, you can get a Coursera um, data certificate Mm -hmm. and suddenly you're a data scientist, even though you've spent years doing it, you just needed that wee bit of a kick and that's what that's going to be. So I think that you're right. Marketing is a great one. We love language. Language matters. How people take it, it matters. We understand there is that history and that words mean more than just what they first appear to be because they affect us differently. Um, They color our existence, if you want to go into synesthesia. Um, But but I think in general, when it comes to the jobs, it's finding the stuff that you like and then understanding that just because you think the word matters does not mean other people understand what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned um, things like Coursera, because I, I think for linguists, it's especially important to know that um, what you were saying, like you have these skills, it's just a matter of translating them into the kinds of job skills that employers are looking for. And sometimes they want that that piece of paper that says mm. you can do it. And there are ways to do it. Like you don't have to go back to graduate school to do it. You can take an online course and get that piece of paper. And you haven't really learned anything different it's just putting yeah. a, a new um a new framework around it and then you can say yes i know exactly how to do this you have the knowledge it's just framing it in the right way so i'm gonna play a bit of a devil's advocate because i will say i loved my master's and i i loved my phd um i love the data and being around those uh, the people in the minds and just thinking um but i actually don't believe that the outside world beyond academia cares about any of that and I think mm. that it actually is more of a detriment than anything else. Um, if somebody says, I want someone with a PhD, 90% of the time, they actually don't want someone with a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you've done a PhD, anyone listening, you're very narrow. Your focus is so small, so, so small, because you want to fully understand that one thing. Um, almost nobody will care about that, except for you and the specific audience that you're working for. And if you're in academia, that's perfect. The second that you get out of academia, it becomes confusing for other people. And I'm not saying that they're dumb. I'm just saying that their understanding of uh, expertise is not so narrow. Um, so if you're a, an expert linguist, your focus is not going to be specifically on the chale particle and how using it becomes a focus marker in, in Nakoda. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's interesting. 
by it's not going to be what they care about. They're going to be generally about, do you understand the overall system? Um, and so I think that if you are not inclined to go to your advanced education that way, um, it is a boon that you can go ahead and say, well, I'll apply for a couple jobs without doing the extra outside courses. Um, but you can also very easily for free go and get that to know the words that other people are using so that you can get the jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes a PhD scares people. Sometimes mm -hmm. a master's scares people. Mm -hmm. And so if you're concerned about that uh, and you just want to start working, it is easy enough to say, hey, listen, I am a linguist and I understand data science. And then on your LinkedIn title, you say linguist and data scientist or linguist yeah. and conversational lover. Um, I think mine says something about uh, linguist and product manager, conversational AI designer, uh, jack of all trades, stuff like that. Um, all of those things are going to be uh, interesting and useful. But the linguist part is more for the people in the know, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I think this comes up more and more. Um, so many people have asked us, and it was a huge topic of conversation at our linguistics career launch a couple of years ago, about whether people should go for a PhD, you know, um, because for many people, it's hugely expensive, you know, if you're not funded, and a lot of people aren't, um, if you have a family to support or a partner, um, it's a huge time commitment, you know, it, it it might not be three years or four years. It might be 10 years. It might be more than that. And if it's not a thing where you're going to need, really need that PhD to get a job as you would in academia, it might not be worth it for you to do it. Plus, the way things are, you can go back. You can get your master's and then you can go back and finish your PhD well, if you want yeah, to. You don't and die when you're 40. That's right. And sometimes your employer will even pay for it, which has happened mm -hmm. for people. So yeah. um, I... I over time, I, I personally have become far less enthusiastic about the PhD as a as a goal for people if they really don't want to be in academia because um, you might just be better off getting out there and getting a job, getting some experience. I, I'm 100% fully aboard on this. Um, I, I think that academia is an isolated world in and of itself. Um, and I think that with the evolution of LLMs and the ability to go into the internet and learn things on your own, um, that having, first of all, I will say my bachelor's in linguistics is not something that I think that I could have gotten mm -hmm. outside of academia. I needed to go for that. Um, I was exposed to so much and it was so incredibly useful. I also believe that my master's and PhD were also very useful, but I do think that that foundation of a bachelor's is what gets me going forward. Um, and then after that, everything else is kind of gravy um, but I, I do see, I, if I had to go back in time and I wanted to make much more money than I'm currently making, <laughs> uh, I may not have pursued a master's or a PhD. Um, mm -hmm. but having done that put me in a position where I could create, uh, jobs that I wanted, uh, inside mm -hmm. of startups. So I could say, I want to do this linguistics. I have the uh, data and the experience to back it up. It, it's all great. Um, and I do know people who are very, very happy having their masters and having their PhDs and having the advanced education because that's what they want to do. Um, I'm just not so sure that the, the uh, education industry anymore uh, can support mm -hmm. 
the the need because you get both people who say we need someone with a PhD but they don't actually know what they need and you have people who say we won't hire people with PhDs because of the tax brackets that they then go into and how much we have to pay them mm-hmm. legally yeah so yeah I, I agree things are changing really quickly and this is a a problem I think within the academic system is that they're they're not attuned to the changes in employment, right? You know, um, as we all know, there are far too many people graduating with linguistics degrees of any type to get jobs in academia because there really aren't any jobs or Mm -hmm. very, very few. Um, And the people who are producing linguists with degrees don't really understand what the employment market is. So they're still kind of on that linear track, right? You know, like we were talking about before saying, well, you get your BA and you get your master's and you get your PhD and that's what you do if you're interested in linguistics. And then you become an eccentric professor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, but that doesn't sync up with the, the real world and the way people are hired. Like you were just saying, there's all these practical things that employers think about when they're looking at candidates. And plus, so many of them don't know what a linguist is anyway and what a PhD means, so... I think that there's another aspect as well. Uh, academia gives you, um, and if you're an academic, you may not agree with me. That's okay. We can agree to disagree. Um, gives you a safety net that doesn't exist outside. So if I were to, I'll give you an example of a robot because I, I do robots now. Uh, there is a company called Jibo. Uh, they created this adorable robot. They went bankrupt. Um, and having talked to a couple people who were working there in the system, one of their things that they said was, we made a mistake. We were too academic about it. We, um, we thought about things too much before we went ahead and we did them. Um, but it was okay because they had the backing of uh, academia. They had universities. They had funding that was just going to come in, so they weren't too concerned about it at first. Um, and so because you have stuff like that, we often, or at least in my opinion, based on what I've been looking at, see that universities are not quick to change. Mm-hmm. They teach theory rather than practicalities. Um, they aren't adapting to modern technologies, modern needs, uh, because they have that safety net. Um, and so this creates a sort of like false sense of confidence for people like us who are in academia, who worked in academia and who needed to leave. You suddenly find, oh, things, things aren't as clear cut as, as I was led to believe. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure about you, Laurel, but when I was going into university, I had this understanding as naive as it was. I was going to go get my degree and then maybe I'd get a master's um, and then I would get a job doing the thing that I wanted to do. So like you would go into a social work facility, a faculty, and you would get a social work degree and you become a social worker. Um, you would go into English and then you would become an English teacher or not really. You'd go into education, become an English teacher. You'd go and you'd take your English degree and then you'd become working at uh, McDonald's, something like that. All the jokes that we make about that. But it's something that I see more and more and more. And I've been out of uh, academia for about six years now. Um, and it's something that I, I know a lot of people, actually, specifically one linguist who went, she went out, she started doing QA. She really liked it. She wanted to do more. And then she said, you know what? I actually just, I like the comfort of a PhD, a master's, a PhD. So she went back for a PhD. Um, because she just wanted to do the research, just wanted to be a linguist. And that's completely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I highly support if you want to do that um, because you do get the good skills. They are the transferable. They are the extras. But you just also need to know that academia is a wee bit different than uh, the rest of the world and that it's not straightforward after you get out. 
Yeah, uh, totally. And and I think um, I, I, I agree with what you're saying, that it's slow and yeah. slow to change, slow to adapt, slow to sort of see what's going on. And I think also very slow to acknowledge the fact that the percentage of people who graduate with master's or PhDs who remain in academia and get that security with a tenure track job or a research position is tiny. It's a fraction of the people who want that, right? So take the pool of people who desire that kind of comfort and stability that you were just talking about versus the actual positions that are open, only like I don't know what one in 10 or one in a hundred or one in a thousand is going to be able to actually achieve that because in the U S anyway, um, tenure track positions, few and far between most people who end up teaching in academia are adjunct. They're not tenured. They go from semester to semester. The conditions are terrible. The pay is really bad. You know, it's, it's, all of the benefit to the the university getting this incredibly intelligent person with all these skills, but what you get in return is not enough to sustain you, let alone to let you thrive. And I'm not sure if this has changed, um, but back when I was considering this as an option, um, universities that I was looking at, they were retired, like they're, they'd wait until their uh, tenured professors retired, they left, and then they didn't open up those positions again. Correct. No more tenure. Um, and it was a big issue back eight years ago. Um, it was an issue that was so big, it was, uh, it could be career killing, um, but it was still being dealt with. So if they haven't fixed it, that's still an issue. It's been going on for a while. And mm-hmm. um, I can tell you statistically uh, of my class, I remember my Linguistics 100 class had like 45 people in it. Um, and by the time we graduated, I think that there was about 10 of us um, and of those 10, two went off to do masters. Uh, one went off to speech path, uh, two masters in linguistics, one speech path. Um, and then only one of them finished a PhD. So if we're just looking at the clock down for that and still, she's going to have a hard time. Uh, mm-hmm. she, it was a, she, she got her PhD. I'm very proud of her. Um, <laughs> if you're listening, Katie, I'm proud of you. Um, <laughs> she's going to have a wee bit of a hard time getting a tenure position, even though she's incredibly smart and um, yeah. works very hard. Oh, totally. Like no reflection on the quality of the people. They're all incredibly, like you said, intelligent, capable, able to do it. Um, and what you say, absolutely true. It's it's the same in the US. It's the same in Europe, I think, in many places. They're just not opening up ten- tenure track positions. Plus, it happens in other places as well. I know here in California, um, there are linguists who have gone to work in the library system um, for mm. universities. So it's it's a academically uh, adjacent position. They're not teaching, but still using linguistic right. skills. You know, library work is very close to it and sometimes requires you to be multilingual. But same, people who are, have been there a long time retiring, and then they just don't fill the positions. So yeah. if you wanted to work in a library, you know, good luck finding a position. There just aren't that many, even if you're well qualified. And now you need a, um, uh, this was a thing that killed me when I was looking for a job, not in academia. There are so many small certificates that you need. Yeah. So if you want to become a librarian, you need a librarian certificate. Right. If you want to become a secretary, there's secretary certificates. Yeah. Um, and so I think that this is why I really like startups. And I think that I highly recommend any person in linguistics finding a startup. And I mean, early stage startups, like you're risking your money here, startups. Um, because you can build that into what you need it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can go and you can say, hey, I like data. 
and I like conversation design. I like writing conversations. I like seeing how they go. I like following flows. Um, I like guessing what people are trying to say. And then you can say, okay, this is kind of the position, the job, the idea that I want, as opposed to saying, hi, I want to join a, a, any company that will take me. I like languages. I'm good at data matching and pattern recognition. Um, and then they say, that's great. No, could you please show us your, uh, how fast you type a sentence? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So speaking of startups, we can stop talking about how dire it is in academia right now. I think everybody knows. Um, <laughs> let, let's, let's talk about your current job. So um, you're at a, a newer company now. How did that happen and what do you do? Uh, so when I reached out to you, I was working at a company called Intuition Robotics, and we created a robot for um, te- uh, helping older adults uh, age in place. Um, specifically, it was to fight loneliness, to encourage conversation. One of the things that kills people, uh, surprisingly and sadly, is depression and loneliness. Their, their mm. heart kind of breaks. They just don't know what to do. Their mind sort of slips away because there's nothing to keep them keeping up with their mind. Um, and there was a whole, whole bunch of tech layoffs that happened. And unfortunately, I was a developer at the time and I was part of those tech layoffs. So I, you know, moped about, frowned cried i got over it and uh, i found a new job in a company called curiosity robotics you'll see that i like the word robotics um and we create a robot called ico and ico is designed to teach toddlers so ages two to three how to speak english uh it uses a pedagogy developed by helen duran who is also a linguist um, from the uk Mm -hmm. Uh, it's been in uh, the field for over uh, 37 years, I believe, used across 40 or more countries. And um, basically, we take the pedagogy, this uh, second language, or it's foreign language specifically, uh, theory, and we apply it to how a robot could talk, interact, and teach. And that's what my company currently does. And I'm a product manager there, but I'm so much more than the title suggests. Mm-hmm, uh, I, I, write, I write conversation. I do a bit of marketing. Um, I look at the data, I do analytics there, um, and help design the overall character of the system. Um, and that's just a fraction of what I do. Uh, and it's very, very exciting. So if you want to have a look, uh, the website is just curiosityrobotics.com with like a dash between curiosity and robotics. Um, and the website was designed by me too. So woo! Oh, hey, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, startups. Oh. Gotta love them. How many people work there? As a, you you know, talking about startups, is it a big startup or a small startup? No, no, it's a, it's a early stage startup. So I'm going to throw out a bit of terminology for anyone who doesn't know. And if you do know, just uh, laugh along with me so I can explain. Um, we are a basically a seed startup, which means we had uh, enough money to go and produce the thing. Um, not a lot, but enough. And we started our POC, which is called a proof of concept, mm-hmm. which was to take the robot with the programming inside of it and put it in front of kids so that we could show this actually does work. Mm-hmm. Um, we started that back in June. We are unfortunately near the end of the school year. So we only get a couple of months to make sure that it works. And we are seeing some really cool improvements. Um, and then we're going to start an MVP, which is the minimal viable product, which is something that you could actually sell at the base level. And we're going to start that uh in the coming year or so. Um, 
So this is kind of what that is. The company is about eight people. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So very early. Um, yeah. I, I like it when they're a little bit earlier because then your job is not what your job is. Your job is anything that you can do to get the company working. Um, and I think that it requires more hours, but ultimately you feel better connected to the people. You feel better mm-hmm. connected to the product. Um, and you feel like you have a hand in more of what's been done. And so I specifically looked for a company that did conversation where there would be some type of human robot, human computer mm-hmm. interaction, uh, HRI or HCI, if you're Googling and taking notes. And um, I looked for a company that was um, l- willing to look for somebody who had the qualifications beyond what their job description was looking for. And so I actually, um, props to my hiring manager, I reached out to him directly on LinkedIn. I did not respond to the LinkedIn um, job ad. And I said, this is what you've asked for. And I'm not exactly that, but I am these things. And if you give me 15 minutes of your time, I'll explain them more. And I think that it would be beneficial for both of us. And it worked out. Um, Honestly, I had a lot of interviews. Uh, The biggest thing that surprised me coming out of academia was when you go for an interview, it's not just like a one interview that's an hour or two hours. It's like seven interviews. Mm-hmm. And some of them could be 15 minutes. Some of them could be four hours. Uh, it's not just like a one and done. Uh, mm-hmm. back, when, back in the day when it would be like, hi, I'd like to work at the international student's office. Great. Could you send the resume? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and then suddenly you have the job or you don't. But it was just mm-hmm. one thing. Uh, now it's like dozens of interviews. It's a full-time job finding a job, to be honest. Absolutely. Oh, so many, everybody says that. Everybody I talk to says that. So yeah, you have to be prepared for it. And it's always a process. You never know what the steps are going to be. You never know how long it's going to take. And um, for, for many people, it's applying for, well, this sort of happened to you. You apply for a job and then you get to the interview and they're like, oh, this isn't right for you. But we have this other position. And then once they know who you are and what you're capable of, there will be something else that you didn't know about that they hadn't even thought about and you might be creating something new, but they see the value in you and your skills. And that's the most important part of these, you know, uh, process of interviewing. Well, and I think that there's a minimal step that I know that we talked about way back when I was a kid, but I forgot about right away. Um, When you apply for a company, (laughs) Google it. Um, Mm -hmm. When I got to the company for uh, the, the previous intuition robotics, for the job that they didn't want because I didn't I didn't speak like an American. I wasn't exactly what they had envisioned. Um, I'd still Googled the company to see what they did so that I could kind of understand. And I looked at the other jobs that they had up. And I, I'll be honest, if you'd asked me what QA was, I would not have been <laughs> able to tell you. Um, but I did 15 minutes before the interview and I Googled and I said, what do I need to know for what this is so I can not be dumb about it? And they asked me questions that I didn't have answers to. And I told them to give me a chance to get back to them. And then I Googled that and I learned what I needed to do to do mm-hmm. the job uh, so that when I came back for a second interview, I was smarter about it. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And again, something that linguists are really, really good at doing the research. Just get out there, do the research. Everybody knows how to do that. That's what we do. That, that's what our, our whole system is based on, getting out there, gathering data. So... 
this has been terrific. And you have offered so much practical information as we've gone through this. It's fantastic. And I, and I think people are going to really enjoy the hearing your story and, and what you did and, and all of your comments about the kind of work that you do and job titles and stuff like that. Just great practical advice. Um, if people are interested in, in connecting with you, is it okay if we put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes? Oh, 100%. Uh, definitely. I don't mind people reaching out to me. Uh, be aware that life does like to happen to me recently. <laughs> so um, if it, I don't get back to you, it's because life has decided to slam me against a wall and hurt me. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, I am always up to and open to that. Oh, great. Thank you. We appreciate that. I, I think um, we haven't discussed it here, but um, doing informational interviews is such a great way for people to just gather some information to find out what it might be like. You know, if people are interested in robotics or conversation design, the best way to find out about it is talk to somebody who does that job. And most people will be really happy to, unless, as you say, life is slamming them against the wall at that particular <laughs> moment in time. Yeah. Um, and I will say just a real quick thing, because I, I really like doing this. Um, if you are interested in native languages and robotics, there is a uh, wonderful product called Scobot, S-K-O-B-O-T, um, created by a uh, uh, wonderful woman named Danielle Boyer, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. She's based in the United States. Uh, her product just gives me joy. I absolutely love it. And so I'm going to throw it out there as just a thing if you guys are interested in doing what I've done, but keep it a little bit more native languages. Um, she's fabulous. I'm so impressed by her. Great. That's awesome. Well, we'll put the link for that into the show notes as well. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been fantastic. And I'm, I'm so glad that, um, you know, you've got this cool position at a startup. It'll be really interesting to see where that goes and, and where your journey takes you next. Absolutely, Laurel. I'm, I'm excited to be here. And if you, uh, well, not if you, I will stay in contact because I love one helping linguists. Linguistics is uh, something that I'm not going to say saved my life, but definitely gave me purpose. But um, but I think that having things like this would be something that I would have absolutely loved uh, back in my undergrad. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we'll yeah, we'll, we can follow up and, and see where you are in, in six months or a year or something. Oh, for sure. Like, hopefully I'll be exactly where I want to be. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Laurel. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistic students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com. 